Hello, everyone, and welcome to Homicide Hot Dish, where you get your weekly scoop of true crime. I'm Brittany. And I'm Deanna. Now, this is Local Murders, Episode 3, and this week's murder may sound a little familiar to some people in some ways, even if you've never heard of this case before. And that's because it has been rumored that this case actually was the inspiration for a well-known movie. Now, we'll get to that in a little bit, because first, like always, we need to talk hot dish. So I'm a sucker for anything that has broccoli, cheese, and chicken. And this recipe is a baked broccoli and chicken hot dish. You actually put potato chips on the top, which I know sounds kind of weird, but it is so good. And on the plus side, well, it does take like 30 minutes to bake, but it only takes like 5 to 10 minutes to put it all together. So like always, check out our Facebook page, Homicide Hot Dish, for that recipe. And now onto the homicide. This is the murder of Carol Thompson. In 1996, a film titled Fargo was released, and I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, have seen that movie. Okay, can we pause and just mention how awful the accent is for Minnesotans and North Dakota folks in that movie? That is not how we talk. Listen to our podcast and you will know how Minnesotans talk. Yeah, the accent is definitely a little overdone. The movie is about a car salesman who hires two criminals to kidnap his wife for ransom to get from her wealthy father. However, the two criminals completely botched the job. This murder, the murder of Carol Thompson, has actually been said to have inspired the plot of the film Fargo, sort of for the almost clumsiness, or I guess amateur nature of the murder. The directors of the film, brothers Joel and Ethan Cohn, have denied the claims, but either way, if you haven't seen this film yet, I think it's a must. Anyhow, now let's talk about our case. Carol Swoboda was born on October 11, 1928 in St. Paul, Minnesota. She was an only child, and in high school, she was very popular and smart. In fact, she was in the top 10 of her graduating high school class. She then went on to McAllister College in St. Paul, and here she met Tilmer Eugene Thompson, who went by T. Eugene, or by the nickname Cotton, which he had since he was a child because of his white blonde hair. T. Eugene was born on August 7, 1927, and grew up in the small town of Elmore, Minnesota, which sits right in the center, pretty much on the Minnesota-Iowa border. T. Eugene decided that he wanted to become an attorney. He attended McAllister College and then St. Paul College of Law. While he was at McAllister College, he met Carol Swoboda. The two quickly fell in love. The show A Crime to Remember actually did an episode on this case, and according to that episode, Carol actually dropped out of college 10 months later in 1948 to marry T. Eugene. They bought a house in Highland Park, which is a quiet, wealthy neighborhood in St. Paul, and they had four children, one boy and three girls. Life seemed perfect. Carol was a loving housewife, while T. Eugene was a prominent attorney in St. Paul. There's a book that was written about this case by William Swanson, and the book is titled Dial M, The Murder of Carol Thompson. The Twin Cities Pioneer Press shared a quote from William where he describes what Carol was like. Deanna, why don't you go ahead and read that quote? It says, quote, She was in many ways the prototypical early 1960s wife and mother. I mean, they had everything except the white picket fence out front. She was active in her church and active in the scouts and did all the things that stay-at-home mothers did in those days. 
She had a million friends with whom she played bridge and got together for coffee parties, end quote. Carol seemed flawless. She loved being a wife and mother, and most people thought her and T. Eugene had the perfect marriage. Their marriage seemed like a fairy tale, picture perfect from the outside. Inside the home, things were a little different. According to that episode of A Crime to Remember, it seemed that T. Eugene and Carol didn't exactly see eye to eye when it came to the definition of what a wife and mother was supposed to be. Carol wanted to travel, she wanted to experience things, and back then, just being a wife and mother in itself was supposed to be enough satisfaction. A woman didn't need to go out or get a job or do things on her own. Also, according to that episode, T. Eugene and Carol's son, Jeff, says that Carol had a friend who was known as Big Red. He was a charming, tall, red-headed man, but he was not a friend of T. Eugene's. Jeff says Big Red was around. A lot. He and Carol would spend a lot of time together and people started to take notice of this. Not only did Carol have eyes for someone else, but T. Eugene wasn't so innocent himself. He had at least one affair that we know of. I have a quote here from their son Jeff that he said again in that episode of A Crime to Remember. Deanna, go ahead and read what he says. He says, quote, I know my mother knew about my dad's affair or affairs. She was saddened by a lot of his behavior. So it would not surprise me if she was to reach out to another person. End quote. So again, this shows that life inside the Thompson home wasn't what people thought it was. There's always something going on behind closed doors. According to the episode of A Crime to Remember, Carol actually says to her daughter Margaret, What would you do if I went away for a while? Now Margaret is obviously kind of surprised by this and concerned about what's going on with her mother. By Carol saying this, they now think that maybe she's planning on leaving T. Eugene. Carol seemed to want more, even though she loved being a wife and a mother. Her son Jeff continues to say, quote, She wasn't Saint Carol, she was a real person. She wanted something special from her life, and my mother, myself, and my sisters deserve better, end quote. So maybe Carol was going to have a relationship with Big Red and move on from T. Eugene. However, she would never get that chance. According to the Twin Cities Pioneer Press, on the morning of March 6, 1963, 34-year-old Carol Thompson ended up at a neighbor's doorstep looking for help. When the neighbor answers the door, she sees a woman standing barefoot, blood streaming from her head and face, and in nothing more than just her robe. Carol had been brutally beaten. According to author William Swanson, he says Carol was so bloody that they didn't even know who she was. According to the Twin Cities Pioneer Press, Carol pleads with the neighbor when she opens the door and is able to say, quote, I've got a knife in my throat. A man did it. He came to the door. Won't you please help me? End quote. Miraculously, Carol is still alive when police get there. They examine her and notice the blade from a knife protruding out of her neck. Whoa, wait a minute. What? Yeah, how she's still alive after this brutal beating and with a knife still in her neck is literally incredible. Carol is transported to the hospital where surgeons remove a three-inch knife blade from her throat. Ugh, oh my god. Yeah. As Carol goes to the hospital, detectives go to her home and enter through a side door. That episode of A Crime to Remember goes through the scenario of what police find. Inside the home, they notice that kitchen drawers have been left open with many utensils kind of spilled out on the floor and they see blood on the drawers. They follow the blood trail, which leads them to the front door. 
and here they find three rounds from a semi-automatic pistol. They notice that the rounds haven't been fired and they also notice pieces of black and white plastic on the floor that they think may be from a custom pistol grip. This leads them to believe that she was hit with so much force that the grip on the gun actually shattered and the bullets ended up spilling out. Under the rug, they find a diamond ring, which they obviously believe is Carol's wedding ring. And the front door was locked with a safety chain, but it had been pulled away from the door frame, making it look like maybe Carol opened the door and somebody tried pushing their way in. Police then follow the trail to the bathroom on the second floor where they find blood on the sink and about five inches of water in the bathtub, along with a rubber hose. The trail then leads them to a bedroom, and in the bedroom, it looks like the crime was maybe a burglary gone wrong. They see that drawers are pulled out from the dresser and things are kind of scattered, but they don't see anything of value that's missing. This just baffles the officers. I mean, if this was a robbery gone bad, why didn't the guy steal anything? Investigators then turn their attention to Carol's husband, T. Eugene Thompson. They find that there is a life insurance policy on Carol for $23,000, which doesn't seem out of the ordinary because that's pretty much a typical amount. Investigators then go to the hospital to check on Carol and see if she's making any progress. Also, they want to go to the hospital because they know that T. Eugene will be there. Detectives see him at the hospital and question him on what he did that day. He says he woke up in the morning and took a bath, Carol made breakfast, and then he left for work around 8 o'clock. He then says he had his secretary make a call to Carol around 8.30. He says the reason for the call was to make sure that he was supposed to pick up the kids from school that day. So his alibi is that he was at work during the intrusion and that it couldn't possibly be him that did this to his wife. Detectives were able to confirm his alibi with his secretary and others who work in his building. Even though Carol had made it to her neighbor's house for help and then made it to the hospital shortly after, still alive, she ended up succumbing to her injuries and died only a few hours after the attack. Her son Jeff recalls of how he found out about his mother's attack. In the episode of A Crime to Remember, he explains that he was in 8th grade choir practice when he got called out of class and was met by his pastor. Now that Carol had passed away, the detectives needed to find whoever was responsible. They talked to neighbors, close friends, anybody who knew the couple. Now, as I mentioned earlier, when Carol got to her neighbor's house, she was naked except for her robe. This made detectives think that maybe there was an affair going on between her and Big Red. You know, maybe he came to the house that morning after her husband left for work and the kids had gone to school. So, detectives tracked down Big Red. Big Red says he was at work that morning and his boss verifies this. Now, there's not really any proof of Carol and Big Red having a physical affair. It may have been an emotional affair, if anything. But I didn't find any hard proof that she was being unfaithful to her husband. And either way... Big Red ends up being ruled out as a suspect. Now the detectives no longer have any leads to follow. They checked into the husband. Yeah, he has an alibi, but he is still suspicious to them. And they checked out Big Red, neither of who were at the Thompson home at the time of the attack. Now the detectives bring their minds back to the crime scene. They're trying to piece together anything they can, and they end up finding out that the shattered pistol grip is from a Luger, which is not a very common gun around that time. And on April 5th, 1963, about a month after Carol's murder, the police hold a press conference on the news. 
They release the information about the pistol grip in hopes that somebody will notice or remember something and tip them off. Did it work? Yes, it works. Less than two days later, a call comes in from somebody saying it's his gun that they're looking for. He says he has an apartment in Minneapolis that was burglarized about two months ago and his gun was stolen. Then officers end up coming in contact with a man named William Ingram, who is the man who stole the gun. But he says he actually gave the gun to a man named Norman Maestrium after he stole it. So now police turn their interest to Norman, who is a 40-year-old former boxer. They bring him in for questioning and find that his lips are sealed. He isn't talking at all. Police need to find somebody who saw Norman with that gun. Maybe that would make him start talking. So police end up coming across a man named Henry Butler. Henry says he saw Norman with that gun the day before Carol was murdered. But he says he saw Norman give the gun away to somebody else a man named Dick Anderson, who is a 35-year-old Marine veteran, but Henry says Dick actually skipped town. So not only was this a stolen gun, but it had exchanged hands three times in the one-month time span from when it was stolen to when Carol was murdered. So detectives follow these leads and try to find Dick Anderson. They actually learn from a reporter that he's in Phoenix, and they find him. They bring him in for questioning, and just like Norman, he doesn't want to tell them anything. But they end up holding him as he's now their prime suspect. He isn't charged with Carol's murder yet, as they don't have any hard evidence or proof, but cops believe they've got their guy. Their main question is, obviously this was a staged robbery, so what did this guy want with Carol? The police are flooded with people offering tips, and they finally come up with something concrete after receiving multiple calls saying the same thing, that they need to speak to a woman named Jackie Olson. Wait, who's Jackie Olson? Well, she was once T. Eugene's secretary for a little while, and his mistress. When investigators speak with Jackie, she doesn't deny the affair with T. Eugene at all. She completely admits to it and explains that they met while he was handling one of her friend's divorces and that after that, she became his secretary. And she says he actually took her on business trips with him. According to the episode of A Crime to Remember, Stephanie Kuntz, the author of a Strange Stirring, The Feminine Mystique and American Women at the Dawn of the 1960s. She says that Jackie waited for T. Eugene for two years, but he refused to leave Carol. So finally, Jackie married somebody else. So police end up crossing Jackie off their list of suspects. Now there's only two people left, Dick Anderson, the last known guy to have the stolen gun, and Carol's husband, T. Eugene. The cops haven't completely crossed him off their list just yet. If they could just somehow tie the two of them together, they'd have a smoking gun. The police go through everything possible in their minds. They had to figure out if they could somehow tie T. Eugene and Dick Anderson together. While they're trying to gather every piece of this puzzle, they discovered something very interesting. Norman Maestrian, the guy who gave the gun to Dick Anderson, had been arrested years prior for a murder, which they knew this, but guess who his criminal defense lawyer was? Don't tell me. T. Eugene? Yep, the one and only T. Eugene Thompson. Now detectives had something. They began digging more into T. Eugene and Carol's finances and found something else very interesting. There wasn't just that one life insurance policy for $23,000. There were actually eight more. Whoa, wait a minute. How many more life insurance policies? Yeah, you heard me right. Eight. 
there had been about $1.1 million worth of life insurance policies out on Carol, all eight policies from different companies. Okay, so $1.1 million in 1963 is probably a considerable amount back then. But what would that be in today's dollars, you think? That's about $8 million in today's money. Wow, okay, I don't have anywhere close to that taken out for me. <laughs> yeah, no, me neither. Not even close. After this information gets out, I mean after the public finds out that T. Eugene has $1.1 million just waiting for him, not only are the police becoming more suspicious of him, but the public is as well. According to their son Jeff, who again was interviewed in that episode of A Crime to Remember, he says people would actually drive right up to him and say, I think your dad's a murderer. The only problem police now face is getting hard proof that T. Eugene is responsible for Carol's murder. Yeah, it sounds really suspicious that he had an affair and took out over a million dollars in life insurance policies on her, but it's not illegal. And interestingly enough, the police get more help. A man named Sheldon Morris ends up turning himself in. According to the episode of A Crime to Remember, he claims to have driven Dick Anderson out somewhere to dispose of some evidence. When police go to investigate this, what do you think they find? Now, think of what is missing from the crime scene. Is it the gun? That's exactly what they find. They find a Luger pistol. And when they place the pieces of that broken grip on the gun, it's a perfect fit. On June 20th, about two and a half months after Carol's murder, Dick Anderson finally starts talking. He says Norman Maestrian came to him and says, hey, I've got a job, but I need help. According to the Twin Cities Pioneer Press, Norman offers Dick $3,000 on behalf of T. Eugene to murder Carol. Dick says the plan is for him to enter the Thompson home while it's still dark out and to then go to the basement where a side door would be unlocked and to wait until the family leaves. It sounds like the plan was for Carol to get a phone call in the kitchen, obviously that phone call being from her husband, well, I guess his secretary, and then Dick was supposed to come up from the basement and hit her with that rubber tube that was found at the crime scene. But he says the basement steps started creaking, so he kind of got flustered and ended up just waiting until Carol got off the phone and went back upstairs. Once she did that, he found her sitting in her bed. He tells her he's not going to hurt her and he just wants money and that then he's going to leave. He tells her to lay face down on the bed, which she does, and he goes over and hits her with that rubber tube. She ended up unconscious and he carried her to the bathroom where T. Eugene had left about five inches of water in the tub. This was going to make it look as though she slipped and fell and then hit her head on the tub, which would make it seem like an accident. This is how the plan was supposed to go. However, Carol was a fighter. She wanted to survive. So she ended up coming to and quickly ran to put on her bathrobe. According to the New York Times, during Dick Anderson's testimony, he says, quote, She managed to get out of the tub, so I knew I had trouble, end quote. He follows her and tries shooting her with the pistol, but the gun doesn't go off. So he hits her and a struggle ensues. Carol ends up getting away from him and runs to the front door. But the door has that chain on it and she couldn't get out in time. She tries to plead with him and actually takes off her wedding ring and tries to give it to him so that he'll just leave. But instead of just taking the ring and leaving, he starts hitting her with the gun. The gun falls to pieces and he just keeps beating her with it. Now again, Carol's a fighter and he just can't keep her down. She is determined to survive this. So he ends up going to the kitchen and getting a knife. According to the Twin Cities Pioneer Press, 
He comes back and stabs her over 50 times until the knife actually breaks off in her neck. 50 times? Wow, she was giving it all she had. Oh, she absolutely was. According to an article that Discovery had put out about this case, Dick Anderson had said, quote, I never saw anyone who wanted to live so hard in all my life, end quote. Now that just shows you how badly she wanted to live. I mean, those words are coming from the guy who killed her. Now at this point during the attack, after he stabbed her over 50 times, he thinks she's dead. So he goes to the bathroom and cleans himself up. He then tries to make the scene look like a robbery. But as he's doing this, he hears a noise, possibly the front door, because when he goes to the entryway where Carol was laying, she's gone. So now we know where Carol went. She went to the neighbor's house three doors down looking for help, and Dick ends up fleeing the scene. According to Xena City Online, on April 19, 1963, about a month and a half after Carol's murder, Norman Maestrian was arrested at his home in Spring Lake Park, which is north of Minneapolis. He was indicted on first-degree murder charges, and that same day, Dick Anderson was arrested in Phoenix. He was also indicted on first-degree murder charges. Also according to Xena City Online, during Norman Maestrian's trial, three witnesses actually testified that he had tried to hire them to kill a church-going lady with four children, obviously that being Carol. But all three of them turned him down before he convinced Dick Anderson of doing the job. During Dick Anderson's trial, he confesses to the crime, and according to the New York Times, Dick says he was supposed to be paid $2,300 of that $3,000 and that Norman intended to keep the remaining $700. Both men were sentenced to life in prison, but they were both later released on parole. T. Eugene was arrested on the morning of June 21, 1963, about three and a half months after Carol's murder. He was at his summer home on Forest Lake in Minnesota, and in an interview for that episode of A Crime to Remember, his son Jeff says, quote, My 14th birthday, I'm laying in bed and I hear the cops come. Eugene Thompson, we have a warrant for your arrest, end quote. And then jokingly, he says, quote, Happy birthday, Jeff. He then goes on to say, quote, The only thing I remember about the morning she died, he asked me to put the chain on the front door. I never done that before. I haven't forgiven my father and my father's never asked for forgiveness, end quote. T. Eugene's bail was set to $100,000, which I read was actually the highest amount for bail back then. He spent about a week in jail before his attorneys were able to arrange for his release. He maintained his innocence and said that he had nothing to do with his wife's murder. His trial began on October 28, 1963, and according to CBS Minnesota, WCCO, in the middle of his trial, a WCCO reporter had interviewed him asking for him to describe his wife. Deanna, why don't you read what he says about Carol? He says, quote, Carol is one of the most wonderful persons anyone could really ever want to know, end quote. So he's trying to make it seem as though he misses Carol and that she was a wonderful wife and mother. According to the New York Times, the prosecution quoted to Eugene saying that he had promised Jackie Olson, his former secretary and mistress, that the life insurance policy benefits from Carol would provide enough money for them to live on. That wasn't the only incriminating thing against T. Eugene. I mean, there is a multitude of things adding up against him, but also noted is that about a month before the murder, he had given away the family dog, a Dachshund. And I mean, the reasoning for this would be so that a dog wouldn't interfere with the attack on Carol. Also noted was that the telephone from their bedroom had been removed as well. This would obviously be so that Carol wouldn't be able to call for help. 
And yet another incriminating detail is the call his secretary made to his wife the morning of her murder. Prosecutors said that the reason for him instructing his secretary to call Carol was so that he could prove that Carol was still alive when he left for work. In 1972, Joe Healy, an insurance investigator, told the New York Times, quote, The trouble was that he had thought of everything, and everything he thought of made him that much more suspect, end quote. And on December 6, 1963, he was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. He served most of his sentence at the Minnesota Correctional Facility in Stillwater, but in 1983, after only 19 years in prison, he was paroled. He ended up remarrying and sold real estate to make money, and because he was a convicted felon, he was prohibited from practicing law. According to the Twin Cities Pioneer Press, his son Jeff is quoted saying, How did he support himself? That's a pretty good question. I believe he had some real estate dealings, but I was not a close part of his life after that. End quote. Their son Jeff actually went on to become a lawyer, and according to the Winona Daily News, in 1986, after T. Eugene was released from prison, Jeff says he and his sisters decided to give their father a chance to prove that he'd been wrongfully convicted and that he's innocent of their mother's murder. So the family all sat down and had a family hearing. During this, their father presented only one document in his defense, a 23-year-old report on blood splatters at the crime scene that he said suggested the presence of a third person, not just Carol and Dick. However, the family was still convinced that their father was guilty. T. Eugene Thompson died on August 7, 2015, which was his 88th birthday. He died at his home in Roseville, Minnesota, and up until the day of his death, he still maintained his innocence in Carol's death. As always, thank you for listening and be sure to stay tuned in to our Facebook page for when our next and final Local Murders episode will be coming out.